so we're actually in a series called The Glorious Gospel of Christ. And uh, we're going to take a little break as we go towards Christmas and remind ourselves as to what God did for us during Christmas. Like, what is the actual meaning of Christmas? There's a lot of wisdom in Christmas. I love celebrating Christmas. I love putting up a tree. I love having a star. I love having lights. I love the family that gathers around it, most of the family. And, I, and Mom, I'm, I love you. Don't worry. <laughs> and um, this year, around our tree, we have an extra member in our family. Her name is Sadie, and she's a little puppy. Oh. But there's so much meaning, so much wisdom behind Christmas, and we oftentimes lose it. We miss it. We don't know how to respond to Christmas. Do you know that suicide rates are up during Christmas? People are more lonely. More people are more lonely during this season than during any other season of the year. And it's really, it's really because of how carnal we are that we actually look at what everybody else has, and remind, it reminds us of how little we have. We look at how happy somebody else is, and we're reminded of how unhappy we are. We, remind, we see how, many, how much family people have, and then we're reminded of the family we don't have. And people become extremely lonely. There's, especially in urban areas, it's becoming a, a real problem. Suicide rates, because people live um, around so many people, and it causes them to have higher expectations of not being lonely, yet they become all the more lonely for it. And so people don't know how to respond to Christmas. So what they do is they just buy a lot of stuff, and we eat a lot of stuff, and we, we get partied out to the max, and we don't quite know really how to respond to Christmas, and I want to talk about that today, the wisdom of Christmas. I thought about this, and I imagined a Christmas with no Christmas trees. Imagine a Christmas where there's no lights decorated around our neighborhoods, no parties, no celebrations, no get-togethers, no carols by candlelight, no reindeer, no Santa. What would be left of Christmas? How would Christmas feel without any of what we see happen in our culture? And on that note, I must tell you that next week we are going to have real candles that everybody's going to hold and we're going to sing carols and we're going to have a wonderful Christmas service next week. But for a moment, imagine with me what it would be like if there was none of this. No Christmas trees, no lights, no decorations, no carols, no candlelight, no reindeer, no Santa, no parties. What would Christmas be like? We see in, in three of the four Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, tells a story of all the extras that happen in Christmas. We see... There's a donkey, there's a stable, there are a few shepherd boys, there's a wise man, there's a star, or there are wise men, and they bring gifts, there's a star. But when it comes to John, the fourth gospel writer, we see him tell a story without all the paraphernalia. He actually doesn't tell a story about a manger, a donkey, a star, wise men. He has nothing of all these extras in his story. His Christmas story goes beyond any kind of sentimental feelings, and it goes straight to the Christmas narrative, straight to the heart and the meaning of the purely theological perspective. So you can go to the book of John and you'll find no donkey. You'll find nothing sentimental about it. He just goes for the kill. And I'm going to read it to you. He says in John 1 verse 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word. Can everybody say the Word? 
That is actually the Bible you're holding in your hands today. Some of you hold it like this. <laughs> it says, in the beginning was this word. And the word was with God. And then he says, makes this claim. He says, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Talking about Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him, Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 14. Let's jump a few verses. It says, And the Word became flesh. That's right. This very Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, and that was, that was God, that Word took on flesh. I mean, it, you can imagine it like a, like, like, like a movie with graphics where the Word existed, and it just grew flesh. That's what it says right there. And the Word became flesh. And what did the Word do? Dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what happens every Christmas. We celebrate, let me say it this way, this is what we celebrate every Christmas. That the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So I thought about this version of Christmas with no Christmas tree, candles, reindeer, Santa, yet there's an actual story here. And this is the story most people usually miss during this time. It's no longer about the story. It's about how much I have, how much I can give, how much I can get, how many people love me, how many people I can love and be with. And so people struggle to get through Christmas because they actually miss the goal thereof. We just had a very big week online. For those of you that are part of our or follow our online ministry, it's called um, Weekly Streams. <clears throat> and every week we release a little video of about five, seven minute video with a little bit of teaching in it. And so Dan Manikam had suggested that we address the Muslim community because we filter throughout the world. We go from country to country, and then we boost videos into certain areas, and we attempt to address the issues within that area. And so when we got to the Arab nations, we thought, well, let's address a certain issue that we know is little, that we are dif differ in. And so we released a video <coughs> titled, Jesus is God. Because for those of you who don't know, the Muslim community actually believe in Issa, which is their Jesus of the Quran. Their Jesus is viewed as a prophet. He actually never died, therefore he never rose, therefore he never became the atonement for our sins, therefore he did not, he cannot be uh, the propitiation for our sins, neither can be he be our high priest. So first and foremost, we have to understand that Isa of the Quran and Jesus of the New Testament are not the same. As a matter of fact, Jesus' mom, Mary, Mary's father's name was Eli. But when you go back down to history of Issa, Issa's mom, Mary, her father, was, his name was Imran. They are not even the, two, the same two people in history. But the Muslims would view our Jesus as somebody we have twisted to make it fit on a cross. 
And so eschatology-wise, and we talked about this a lot, but in the end times, their eschatology says this, Esau will return. He is like Elijah who never died. And he will return, and his goal with returning is to support the Mahdi, which is their Christ. And um, when he comes, he will do what? He will break the cross, the Quran says. So their Isa comes to destroy the false Christ who hung upon a cross. And of course, uh, in, yeah, which is our Jesus. And of course, our Jesus of the New Testament, he's coming back also to deal with the false versions of himself. <laughs> so as you can see, where my mind lies when it comes to eschatology and who the false prophet of the Antichrist might be, the Mahadi and, the, and Issa. But that was not for today. <clears throat> However, we did this video showing how Jesus is God. And we had almost uh, 300,000 people watch the video on Facebook. It was a real popular one. Most, mostly from the Muslim community watched this video. And of course, there was a hearty conversation and a lot of arguments within the com comment section. If you want to go there, you can see a lot of this, um, a lot of debating between some Christians and Muslims about Jesus and Isa and the fact that Jesus is God, which they believe He's not. And we, we commit blasphemy every time we see Him as God. Nevertheless, here is where we stand on the issue as Christians, and it's important because this is the one that was born for us. Okay, this was the one that came for us in a manger, born, by, born through Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, and we see Him, this baby, as God. Very offensive to the Muslim community. Um, but we see Him saying in John 10, verse 30, He says, I and the Father are one. The question is, what are we going to do with that statement that Jesus made? Why do we see him as God? Because in John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There he echoed when God said, I am. Why do we believe that Jesus is God? Because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But of the Son, of, but of the Son He, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Can you imagine that? God the Father points to Jesus the Son, and He says, to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Why do we believe Jesus is God? Because in John 20, verse 28, it says, Thomas answered Jesus and said to Him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to Him, because you have seen Me. He didn't say, hey, don't blaspheme. No, He says, because you've seen Me as that, you have believed, question mark. Blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe that I am. Why do we believe Jesus is God? Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. I mean, there, there is no two ways about it, folks. It's in every Bible we have. It's in the Septuagint, which is the Bible we still have that was translated from the actual original scriptures. It's in the Catholic Bible. It's in every Bible. God is 
Jesus. Jesus is God. They are one. Why do we believe Jesus is God? Matthew 1 verse 12, 20 says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet in the Old Testament. And now he quotes the Old Testament. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel which translated means God with us. Jesus is God, nothing less. You see, it is clear that it was God who actually came to earth. And without becoming any less than God, He took on flesh, the form of man. In other words, He's 100% God, and He is 100% man. He's 100% man, so He was able to die, and He's 100% God because He's able to rise from the dead. This is what a lot of people have a problem with, especially in Arab nations, is the fact that how can God die? Well, He's 100% man. That's why. So the question I'd like to deal with specifically today is how should every person respond to Messiah? How should every person here today respond to Emmanuel, God with us? How should every person here respond? So I figured what we can do is we could study the Magi, the wise men. And as we look at the wise men, we can actually take some cues from them as to how it is that they responded when Jesus was born. Everybody know that when Jesus was born, there was a star, they followed the star, and they responded to Christ. The question is, how ought we to respond to Christ as He was born? And we celebrate that right now. So let's look into the Magi, a very interesting group of people. <clears throat> the wise men who followed the star responded to him. They went out and sought after him. So I want to read this to you so we can get a nice backdrop as to what we're going to address today. Matthew 2 verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and so was all of Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, or inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Now, who's asking the question? Herod. Who's answering? The Magi, the wise men. Herod says, where is this king going to be born? Of course, he's threatened, right? Because Herod was king at the time, and he hears about this king that was just born. So he asks the Magi, where is this Messiah that's going to be born? Where is he going to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. The question is, where did they get that information from? They, they, they tell us, for this is what has been written by the prophets. They knew 
the prophets. They knew the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why they did. Verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, now he's quoting the prophet. He says, the prophet said, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you, little town, shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So he wanted to know where and he wanted to know when. Why? Because he wanted to go kill him. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Liar. Pants on fire. <laughs> Verse 9. After hearing the king, of course they were wise, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, or rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. What did they do? They worshipped him. You know, it's, it's total blasphemy to worship anybody but God. Jesus is God. So what did they do? They came into the house, they fell to the ground, and immediately... They worshipped Him. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way. Where am I? Sorry. <clears throat> 11. Thank you. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped Him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to Him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So, who were the Magi? Who were these wise men that sought after Jesus, the newborn king, found him, went there, and then gift and gave him gifts after they worshipped him? Or that's how they worshipped him, by gave, giving him gifts. Who were they? A lot of people see them as kings, but they were not. Many people, at least on Christmas cards, how many are there? We three kings of... Nope. It doesn't say three. We only think three. Why? Because there were three kinds of gifts, gold, myrrh, and frankincense. <clears throat> but there weren't three. We don't know how many there were. There were many. That's all we know. What were they? They were mathematicians. They were historians. They were scientists, magicians, enchanters, and astrologers of Babylon. That's who they were. Why were they in Jerusalem? It's clear they came to worship Jesus and acknowledge Him as King. This is important to know. Matthew 2, 2 verse says, uh, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw His star in the east and have come to worship Him. That was the purpose for them coming, worshiping Christ. The Magi had a very unique responsibility in their culture, and that was to identify kings. In other words, they were the Middle Eastern king makers. As a matter of fact, no one could rise to the position of king until Magi identified them as king. Until Magi gave them the approval. <clears throat> now, how did they know about the birth of Jesus, the king of the Jews? This is very interesting and very eye-opening, at least to me. But uh, 536 years before Jesus was born, 
The prophet Daniel lived. He lived in Babylon. He served under three very, very evil kings. But Daniel was a man of excellence. And Daniel's an example for you and I how we ought to live in a very depraved and corrupt world. A society that absolutely rejects God. How ought we to live? In excellence, because we are His ambassadors. Daniel served every king he lived under, no matter how cruel those kings were. Remember? They even framed him, and he was eventually caused to be thrown into the lion's den. This is the Daniel we're talking about. But the Bible tells us that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was made the chief over this group of people called the Magi. He was their trainer. He was their teacher. He was their mentor. He was their oversight. He was their authority. Daniel 5.11 says, There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made this Daniel chief over all of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. He was the chief over all of them. Now, this was 500 years before Jesus was born, but he was the guy that crafted their curriculum. So they obviously were ministered to. They were trained and educated by this prophet Daniel who have told them of his own prophecies because Daniel was a prophet and he prophesied in detail the coming Messiah. He prophesied in detail the coming king, this great Jewish monarch that's going to be born in the line of David, this majestic world king of whose kingdom there shall be no end. He taught about it. He prophesied it. So we, know, so we know this because the Magi knew the prophets. And the Magi knew the prophecies of Christ's birth. That's why when um, King Herod asked them the question, where and when was this king supposed to be born, they could give him the prophets. So I hope this gives you a good backdrop as to who the Magi is. So when we think of these wise men, we usually think of three harmless older men dressed in robes, riding through a desert on backs of three lazy and worn camels. That's usually what I think when I think of the three wise men. But the reality is that they came from the Middle Eastern Empire, and their entourage, according to history, included hundreds and hundreds of servants. If you think of all the pomp and the circumstance of these Arab royalty and nobility, uh, you can see this actually to be true. They had hundreds and hundreds of servants, hundreds of slaves. They had their own personal cooks. And they had thousands of soldiers on Arabian horses, according to history, as their personal security force. So this was a big entourage. When they came seeking the Messiah, the newborn king, it was a big deal. So in spite of all the difficulty, you know, the distance that they had to travel, they came to worship Jesus. How many of you drive more than 30 minutes to get here in the mornings? Anybody? <laughs> <clears throat> but in spite of the difficulties, they 
traveled the distance to come and worship Jesus. In spite of the dangers, including the traveling through the desert and parched lands and threatening the threat of meeting Herod and so forth, they came to worship Him. In spite of what it would cost them, they came bearing gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there are things we can learn from how the wise men found Jesus. Two things that I want to highlight to you. How did they respond to this newborn king? We can be taught from this so that we too can respond to Jesus during this time, especially if we are not a believer in Christ yet. The first response we see is that we learn about how the ministry of the Spirit functioned in their lives. Because the question is, what caused these guys to pay that high price, to travel all that distance, take, you know, take a chance with all that danger, and then spend all that money and all that wealth in worshiping Jesus? What caused them to do that? What caused them to seek after Jesus? Well, the answer for that is that God placed in their hearts the desire to meet, know, and worship Christ. How do we know this? Because even though they were seeking Jesus, the Bible says there's no one who seeks God. Not even one, including the wise men. Nobody seeks after Him. The truth is, when God found you, you were, you were running away from Him. When, you lo when He loved you, you were still hating Him. <laughs> <clears throat> when he came to hug you, you were still his enemy. The same thing was true for them. You see, many, many arrange their church services in such a way that they'll be able to accommodate what's called now seekers, okay? Uh, but friend, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says this in Romans 3 verse 11. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks. There is none. Somebody may say, well, Jacques, I sought after God. My response to you is that the only reason you sought after God was because He gave you the desire to seek after Him. He gave you a new heart, and He gave you the desires of your heart. And that, by the way, is not the boat you've been dreaming of all your life. <laughs> that desire He gives you is for Him. You see, and at the point where God places a desire in your heart to seek after Himself, then, no niceties, are ever necessary anymore. The moment His desire that He placed in my heart for Himself filled my heart, I didn't need niceties. I needed Him. The moment He filled my heart with a desire for Him, I didn't need services that accommodate me necessarily. I actually wanted God. I didn't need the friendly sugarcoating truth sermons and services to cater towards me. No, I needed truth. No soft pews were required. I needed truth. So when God places a desire in your heart, friend, then you cannot be satisfied with anything but Him. I mean, nothing else fits in that heart of yours. Nothing else satisfies that heart of yours that now desires Him. You see, it's like a person who was lost in the desert for 24 hours. Now, how long can you live without drinking water? Anybody knows? Okay. But let's say, for instance, food, yeah. How many, how many days can you go without water? Three? 
let's say, for instance, this guy gets lost in a desert. And he had no water. And two days later, they find him. He comes walking out of the desert. And he hasn't had any water for all that time. And as he comes walking out of that desert, everybody continues to offer him only candy and popcorn. More candy and more popcorn. Come on, get some popcorn. Enjoy the show. You're back. Yippee. You see, it actually does not appeal to him at all. It could even repulse him in a way or offend him. It will not and it cannot satisfy the person who is thirsty. You see, offering only candy to a man about to die from thirst is actually cruel. Does this make sense to you? In the same way, seeker sensitive, or seeker sensitivity, let me call it that, is often an offense to those who are desperately looking for the real, raw, unfiltered Jesus Christ who saves from sin. When I needed to be saved from sin, that's what I needed. <laughs> Nothing else, right? And thank God when He enabled me to turn from seeing myself as the guy who has to save myself, by checking every box and being good, not, not naughty but nice. <laughs> I was nice, I was nice, I was nice, I was nice. Great, I saved myself from being, from, from, you know, from being separated from God. When I see myself like that, how can I be saved? But when I came to the realization that I am a sinner who has a lot of sin, and I do sin because I'm a sinner, like a dog barks because he's a dog, I sin because I'm a sinner, I was born with a sin nature. And when I realized that, I said, God, how can I be saved? And he said, turn to me away from you. I had to turn away from seeing myself as my personal savior, my own savior, saving me from my own, from saving myself by my good works, turn to Christ and believe in him. The day I did that, all of my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. They were swallowed up in the cross. You see, but when I was here, seeing myself for who I was, a lost person needing a God to save me from myself, when I realized that, I didn't need candy. <laughs> I didn't need you to be nice to me. I needed truth. How can I be saved? You see, it takes God to want God. And when a person wants God, then nothing but truth can satisfy. Not only can you not desire God unless He places that desire for Himself in your heart, but you can never recognize Him unless He miraculously opens your eyes. Talking about how we ought to respond to Jesus. In Luke 24, verse 28, it says, And they approached the village where they were going, and He acted as though He were going farther. It isn't so funny to read how Jesus acted. <laughs> they, were approached, they were approaching this little town after they were walking with Jesus, and Jesus was like, all right, see you guys. And he looked over his shoulder. He wanted to see what they were going to do because he's acting like he's going to go past the town. And then as he was acting, as if he was going to just keep walking and leave the, leaving them behind, verse 29, but they urged him saying, stay with us. For it is getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, 
He took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Can you believe it? They walked with Jesus from one town to another town. They had this long conversation. They didn't know it was him. And then he pretended like he was going to keep walking. And they said, no, stay with us. He said, all right, I'll stay with you. <laughs> and then they had dinner. They had communion. And a miracle took place right there. The Bible says their eyes were opened, verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Remember, he was already resurrected at this time. And so, so how, how interesting is this? That you could never recognize him unless he miraculously opens your eyes. Isn't it so true for so many? They open up the Bible and they're like, I don't even know what I'm reading. <laughs> they go to church all their life and they're like, well, my mom did this, so I'm going to do this. Or, you know, everybody I know does this. And by the way, I don't have friends, so I'll just go there. They have to accept me. <laughs> they, they're Christians. You see, so people, people can go through Christianity like that all their lives. But until this miracle happens, they could never recognize Jesus for who he is. They had still got eyes on themselves going like, yeah, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to check every little box, and I'm going to not be naughty. I'm going to be nice, and I'm going to qualify with God. But when God opens your eyes, you, like the disciples, go, oh, like the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. He goes like, everything I want to do, I don't do. Everything I want, everything I don't want to do, I keep doing. What's wrong with me? He says, oh, what a wretched man I am. And this was the apostle Paul. You think you better? <laughs> he goes, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? I'm dying. There's no two ways about it. I'm going straight to hell. And then the next verse he says, but thank God. <laughs> there is no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. So when your eyes open like the disciples and they saw themselves for who they are, lost sinners, and they turn and they see Christ for who he is, the one who died for their sin, and if they would only believe in him, they too will be saved. Everybody who sees that has a deep desire and an ability to turn their backs on themselves to their dead works and turn to Christ and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And all their sins are forgiven at that moment. That's the moment of salvation. So not only can you desire God unless God places that desire in your heart, but not, number two, you could never recognize Him unless He opens your eyes so you could see Him. Furthermore, number three, we could not even come to Christ unless the Father draws us to Him. What? Mm -mm, you can't. Look at it. Scripture says, John 6, 44. No one. Can everybody please say no one? No. This is written in red, okay? No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws that person. And I will raise him up on the last days. My, we couldn't even come to him unless he draws us. I'm saying this because, folks, to be, to be very honest with you, if you have a desire for God in the least, you ought to be thankful, grateful, and humbled that God even gave you that desire to want Him in the first place. 
if you recognize how much you need him, that is a gift from God. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the devil condemning you. That's a gift from God so you can go like, oh, I need Jesus. That's God's gift. Otherwise, you would just keep going down the same road trying to save yourself. That's a gift from God when your eyes open. You know, when you're drawn to God, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws. If you are drawn in the, little, in the least, it's God. It couldn't be you. You don't want God unless God causes you to want Him. Look at this one. We couldn't even love Him unless He first loved us. <laughs> 1 John 4, 19, we love. Why? Because He first loved us. That's why we love. The person who doesn't love God is just not aware of God's love for them. 1 John 4, 10 says, and this, and this is love, not that we loved God. That's not love, no. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin, and I mispronounced it. So the conclusion here is that it is God who put the desire in our hearts to seek Him. How could these wise men have done everything they did had it not been God? It's God. You cannot seek God unless He gives you the desire in your heart to seek after Him. You cannot know God or identify Him unless He reveals Himself to you. You cannot come to Christ unless God the Father draws you to Him. You cannot even love God unless God first loves you and you know it. So the bottom line is this. It was God who put the desire in the hearts of the wise men to seek after the Lord. It was God. And if you have an opportunity, respond. Respond to God. There's no other thing you can do for Christmas that's significant. But respond to God. Why does this matter? Because God is today seeking after you. Today, God is calling your name. Today, God is working in your heart and drawing you. You might ask this question, well, Jacques, um, I don't know if it's true about me. You, you know, you, you're talking about people in general, but what about me? I don't think it's true about me. How do I know God is seeking me, calling me, drawing me to himself? And here's the answer. Are you ready? Ask yourself this question. Do I have any interest in knowing the answer to that question? Is God calling me? Do I really want to know if He is? Is God drawing me? Do you really want to know if He is? If you do, where did that come from? See? Every person alive that has a desire to know that they're right with God or want God in any way, that has to be God. That is God. So respond to Him today. Because if God was not drawing you, not calling you, you would be absolutely interested in that question and you would laugh at it. If you are not a born-again, regenerate believer, in other words, if, if knowing Christ has not had a total life 
altering effect on your life, then respond to Him today. You might think, well, I think I believe. I think I believe. That's the wrong question to try and figure out. The question to figure out is, if knowing Christ has had a total life-altering effect in your life, if your priorities have changed, if your goals have changed, if your values have changed, and you now want Him and not everything else for self, you know you're saved. You know God has worked in your life. But if not, then this is your, your time to respond. Respond to Him today. How can I respond, you ask? By turning your back on seeing yourself as your own Savior. How can I see myself as my own Savior? By bargaining on my good works to be right with God. And so I turn my back on myself as the one who saves myself. How do I turn my back on Him? I turn to Christ. I deny myself. I disassociate with myself. And I look to Christ. He sacrificed. And I see it as sufficient payment to save me from the consequences and of my sin and also the power of the sin in my life. There's a second thing that enabled the wise men to seek after Him. The first is God's working. How do I know God's working in me? You want Him to. <laughs> That's how you know God's working in you. The second thing to know is that the message of the Scriptures was important to them. They gave themselves to God's calling, sought after Christ. The second thing is they understood the Scriptures. They knew the message. Matthew 2, 20, verse, Matthew 2 verse 2 says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was with, troubled with him. Verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written. Evidently, the Magi knew the Scriptures. Thus, they were able to quote from the prophets, the birthplace of Christ, the Messiah. Now, there are more than 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. More than 300. I want to tie it back together with how I opened regarding Isa, the Jesus of the Quran, and Jesus, the Messiah of the New Testament. How do you know who's who? Who's the real? Well, it is so wonderful how God put this together that He gave us 300 prophecies that the Messiah needs to match in order to qualify as the Messiah, which the Jesus of the New Testament fits every single one of them perfectly, like a glove. He's the one whose hands were pierced. I mean, you can go down the list, more than 300 of them. He fulfills them all. Isa. So my encouragement to you, folks, is to actually, um, that's actually nice to know because that's one way to minister to people who do not know <laughs> the difference between the two Christs or those two who are viewed as Christ, our Jesus and their Isa. If you want to find the Jesus of Christmas, you will find him not only because you are drawn by the Spirit of God 
given the desire by God, receiving open eyes, the miracle of open eyes by God. But number two, go to the Scriptures. That's what we are called to do when Christmas comes around. It's a reminder that God called you, drew you to Himself, but He also speaks to you on a daily basis. How? Through the Word of God. You see, many of these people missed the first coming of the Messiah because why? They simply did not read or believe or obey the Scriptures. For example, we do not have any record of the scribes. We have no record of priests who went to Bethlehem to worship Him. Not even Herod actually went to Bethlehem to look for Him. Yet, they knew the Scriptures told, spoke about Him. The Scriptures clearly and plainly declared His first coming. So also the Scriptures clearly and plainly declares His second coming. Many missed His first coming. And there will be many who will miss His second coming for the exact same reason. They are not healing through the drawing of the Spirit. While there was a time for them where they had a desire for God, they did nothing. They did not turn and they did not believe. And they missed. Those, missed, those who missed the first coming of Christ and, they will, and those who missed the second coming of Christ, they will do it for the same reason. Because the second reason is they listened they listen to the message of Scriptures but did nothing with it. Therefore, today I want to encourage you with all that I am, healed to His call in your heart now. There's no other message in Christmas than this. Listen and believe in His written word now. We have come to the end of a decade. I want you to take 10 seconds, and I want you to think about what has your life produced that is eternal over this last 10 years. Let me say it again. What over the last 10 years has your life produced that's going to be eternal? What all has God been able to do through you over this last 10 years? That's the question I have to ask myself. Well, you know, I did bank 10,000. It's going to burn. You don't take anything with you except that which is eternal. What is eternal? Everything God accomplished through your life for His glory, not your comfort. We're standing at the brink, doorstep of the next 10 years. Let's look back. Some of us may have to weep a little bit <laughs> as we look back. And then we have to thank God for the next 10 years and say, that's it. I'm putting a stake in the ground. I'm going to yield to His call in my heart starting today. I'm going to listen and believe in His Word today. These are the two things the wise men did. And they are lights to us today. They are ministers to us today as we read the Word of God. This is why they were wise. And this is how we ought to respond to God this very Christmas season. Let's pray.